Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza, joined on my far, I guess it would be left if you're watching us, but my far right, John Sheeran, my co-host. John, how are you doing tonight, buddy? I'm good, but what matters right now is who's in the middle of us, and I think we should introduce him as well. That's right. It's a it's a week of special guests, and we've, we've got Tim McGee, former Super Bowl wide receiver with the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, radio voice of the team covers the team. We are so excited to have him back on the program. It's been a little while since we had him on, but good to have him on this evening. Mr. McGee, how you doing? I am doing great. Life is good, uh, even during the uh, pandemic. So just making the best of it. Well, that's good. I know we're gearing up for the holidays here. And, uh, you know, I, you, you told us before we took the air, you're keeping busy. And part of that is by covering the Cincinnati Bengals, and I guess we're we're going to start there uh, about the current state of the team, 2-9-1. and one. No franchise quarterback playing for this team anymore, coming off a pretty ugly loss this last week. Uh, you know, I, I guess we all kind of knew this was going to be a growing pains kind of year for the team. I don't think we expected 2-9-1 and one and no Joe Burrow at this point in the season. So I guess in terms of your expectations for the season and what we've seen so far, how are you gauging things right now? Slugwood and I, uh, we do uh, the post-game show and sometimes the pre-game show for uh, for the Bengals and WLW and iHeart. And one of the things that uh, kind of we were always we've always been perplexed by, we didn't this team this this team in particular didn't have a bar, and that was for the last say two years uh, since uh, uh, Zach Taylor has come in uh, as the head coach. You really didn't know what to expect from them, so it was kind of like an invisible bar. If they played up, you're like, oh, okay. Uh, they look pretty good today, and if they played down, oh, these are growing pains. So, and, and when we go back a, a year and a half, or actually a little, a little over a year and a half ago, one thing we identified is the way they played in the very first game against Seattle. Uh, we were so impressed with that, we felt, oh, okay, this really looks good. And I'll never forget. I said this to Chick on air. I go, that's probably the best you're going to see them. And of course, I got the why, why, why? Oh, you know, you're hating on them. So, no. That was the first time that teams actually had them on film. So now they knew what to expect, and they can kind of game plan around. When Zach first comes in, it's the unknown. Defense coordinators don't know what type of offense they're running, so on and so forth. So, And what we learned and what we quickly learned, unfortunately, it was a pass-happy offense, and it was a defense that had many a hold. But going into the hire, we felt – the 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 messaging was with my system and that talent we could be successful that's what zach taylor pretty pretty much interviewed on 
and that didn't work out. So, you know, when we accelerate up to this year, okay, now we have the number one draft pick uh, in Joe Burrow, and we know how outstanding that is and could be the potential of that. And then we had some upgrades on the defensive side of the football. So like you said, never in our wildest dreams or nightmares did we think the team would be at the stage with only two wins and and no wins on the road for the second straight year. So those statistics speaks for themselves. They, unfortunately, how do you continue to go to work? How do you continue to motivate? So creep and um, doubt starts creeping in, rightfully so. The locker room starts getting a little contentious, rightfully so. Uh, you start hearing about the coach getting fired, rightfully so. You start hearing about everything, the bickering that goes in the locker room. And this is what losing does. It becomes so addictive that it becomes contagious. And that's where you are right now with the, with the ball club. Sadly, that's where you are. That Seattle game feels like 10 years ago at this point. Um, but when we interviewed you back in March, I actually re-listened to the interview because it was such a great one. It was a great one for this program. And if anyone hasn't listened to that, they should check that out from this past March. But you said in that interview that, you know, the NFL is not college, that you don't get three years to turn around a team. The time moves a lot faster With, with everything that's happened this year with the injuries and obviously Burrow going down and all the other commotion that's happened in the locker room. How do you, how do you judge this coaching staff, do, do they deserve that third year with everything that's happened or is it just, it, it's just the way it is. It's the NFL. It's just the way it is in the NFL. However, this organization is a little different than, it, than how it's done throughout the NFL. They, they're very loyal. They give, they give coaches a little bit more room to, um, to be successful, but this coaching staff, sadly, and I, and, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of Zach Taylor. I'm, I, I want him to succeed. I want to make sure that's on record. I would love, but I have to, I, I look at the reality of things and I would be insulting the fans' intelligence by saying things such as they're going to get there. There are literally no indicators, none that I can think of where you can hand your hat and say, if this scenario happens, there's not enough bandages in the box to fix all the leaky holes that the team has. When you talk about Burrow getting hurt, it, it's, it, although we were sadly disappointed, but none of us was shocked, none of us. Every game we watched, we were like cringing. Every throw, every tackle, every sack, every pass rush, every time we were cringing. We were never as a fan base relaxed to say, oh, he's gonna be in a nice, comfortable pocket. We knew, it was a matter of time and all we were guessing though and hoping and praying the severity of the injury wasn't what it actually turned out to be. So once again, you have to look at that and go, you had one job. Your number one job on this coaching staff was to protect your franchise. He's the future of this franchise. He can be the sole reason why the Bengals are still in Cincinnati after their lease is up. So that's how important protecting Joe Burrow could turn out to be. And that was a failure. It was an epic failure. So you have to judge on that. You can't, you, you, I want to judge on Zach Taylor is, from what I understand, is one of the nicest men you can be around. And I, I look at a Dave Shula who I personally played under, and he was the same way. But from a leadership standpoint, 
how do you get these guys motivated when all they know is failure under him? When, when I say, as a coach, when I say, and I'm preaching to my ball club, hang in there, hang in there, things, things are going to turn. What, where is that coming from? Where is that vast experience, that knowledge, that understanding? When have you been through that storm before? So these things are, they're natural. They're not concocted. They're not uh, someone bad-mouthing or feeling bad or wants this thing to go in a negative direction. Direction. It's just the reality of the whole entire situation is it is what it is, and it hadn't gotten any better. You've seen him play eight seasons, outstanding seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals. He's the pregame and postgame voice of the Bengals, uh, covering them on the radio. It's Tim McGee joining us on the Orange and Black Insider and the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel. Happy to have him with us. You mentioned his name, Tim, and I guess I got to go there because a lot of fans make that general equation of Zach Taylor and David Shula. And you you played for one of the best coaches in team history in Sam Weish, and you played for one of the worst in terms of win-loss records in David Shula. The parallels that you're seeing there in your eyes, because you played for David Shula, I, w- I would really like to hear if, if those parallels ring true based on what you've seen from Zach Taylor and – does Zach Taylor deserve another chance, maybe with a staff under him shakeup? Uh, do, do you see that that would be something that would work well for the Bengals going into next season? Or is it, is it in your estimation, still, still kind of maybe thinking about time to blow things up? Let's talk about the staff shakeup first, and then I'll, I'll get to the comparison between the uh, two coaches. There's a natural progression in the National Football League. First, the coach comes in his first year and, you know, he blames the um, the lack of success, if you will, on the previous regime. Okay. Uh, you know, that, that guy just, he left me when it's like politics. He left me in a real bad position. That's, that's what they're going to say. The second year is going to be, that's really my true honeymoon period. You know, now I'm starting to get the guys in that I need and, you know, we're going to go out here and we're going to fight, but we're not there yet. But you got to go back. You got to go back to the interviewing process. And when the interviewing process says, again, with that talent in my system, we can be successful. In year two, you took a guy, in year one and year two, you took a guy named Joe Mixon, you hadn't used. These are just facts. I mean, they're just facts. You, can, you have never established a running game. You couldn't provide, you couldn't protect your biggest asset, your best asset. Okay, so what, what do you do now? How are you going to fire the offensive coordinator? when the head coach is calling the plays, there lies a major problem. Okay. How are you going to get rid of the defensive coordinator? Well, you've never fired anyone. Here's the problem. When you look at that staff, you see no vast experience. You don't see a guy like a Jack Del Rio on there that you as an inexperienced coach, and we've all been there. It's not, it's not just being a head coach. When you first start doing podcasts, we had to start somewhere. When, you first, when I did my first radio show, it was my first radio show. But did you have someone across from you or to your side or that had your back that you can turn to and say, how do I, how should I handle this situation? What, what, what should I do? What's your thoughts on this? That staff didn't have that. They had a bunch of renegades that did not have, let's just face it, a lot of success. Now, one thing I'll give them, they must have some hell of a interviewing skills to get the job because there's only 32. And they were they were smart enough, wise enough, and they did a damn good job in getting a head coaching job. 
And as far as the comparison between the two head coaches of Dave Shula and Zach Taylor, obviously it's two totally different eras. But what I saw in Dave Shula, he tried to do that. He was, now he was really, really inexperienced. And in my opinion, he wasn't ready. And when I say ready, he just wasn't ready because the, uh, I guess the bird's eye view from my standpoint is Dave Shula was my wide receivers coach. And I knew uh, how unprepared he was to be a wide receiver coach, let alone a head coach. I mean, we would be in the meetings and he would ask Eddie Brown and myself, hey, what do we do on this? What's the site adjustment, blah, blah, blah. So he was learning and, and he, was a student, he was a student of the game. There's no question about it. But he was not in any way, shape or form ready to be the head job, to take the head job. I see the similarities in Zach where I think Zach is more of a John Madden type of head coach. He thinks he can do it. And his ego probably has him really convinced that he can do it. But when you get out there in these game situations, you have to recognize fourth down, it's not a down that you go for it every other time. When it's third and one and fourth and one or a second is short, you got to learn how to run the ball. You got to learn how to say, man, oh, man, oh, we must beat the guy in front of me. I must outperform that guy in front of me. That's how we will win football games, especially when you're in an environment in the Midwest with inclement weather, inclement, I'm sorry, inclement weather in the wintertime. You know, so these fundamentally you knew Zach would make some mistakes, but God, by God, we didn't think it would be this bad. And after that last game, guys, I can tell you that was, that was just a, um, we try to defend, 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 protect. It was beyond. I mean, we, we kind of threw in the towel, go, okay, just go ahead. Let us have it because there's, there's, you, you can't go back through the, oh, well, we get Joe Mixon back and we get this guy back and we do this and we do that. We were, we were playing the hell out of the game of scenarios and just people are not going to buy it anymore. And rightfully so. I guess that's a good segue because just thinking about that last game in Miami as a former player, like what, what goes through your mind when you see all, all those ejections happening and basically all the commotion down there? I, I thought was in a, from a critical sense, I thought, hmm, isn't this what the fans said that Marvin Lewis teams wasn't disciplined, that um, they quit? I mean, you were like going to I, check, check, check. This is what they said. This is what they said. And after the game, first of all, I was I, I look at the my I look at the Miami Dolphins going into the game. I look at the Miami Dolphins and I look at the Cleveland Browns. And the, and the reason I look at those teams because I felt those are those are fair comparisons of where the Bengals should be. Because obviously, remember, it wasn't last year, Miami and the Bengals were fighting. This is a kind of a terrible statement here, fighting for first place in the draft, which meant last place in the league. <laughs> so obviously Miami gets it. So how, how is Miami ascending at such a rate? I think they're over, a little overrated, but nevertheless, how are they winning games? And the Bengals are still in the same exact position. How is Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns in the AFC North, guys, look at it. It pains us, but I'm from Cleveland, so, you know, mixed emotions <laughs> here. But it pains you to sit there and go, look at the makeup of the Cleveland Browns, meaning go position by position. Number one pick and quarterback, two-star receivers, adequate tight end, weak offensive line. You look at offensive defense, you go, wait, wait a minute. They could switch uniforms, and they look the same. So why is, again, why is one team succeeding and the other team isn't? 
that's when I was looking at the Miami Dolphins, to answer your question directly, that's what bothered me the most, that they were ascending in a, high, in, in, in a very positive way, and the Bengals were still status quo, which mean, meant they haven't gotten themselves out of the, out of the bottom of the pack. Talking with Tim McGee, former wide receiver with the Cincinnati Bengals and pregame, postgame radio voice covering the covering the games of the Cincinnati Bengals. Happy to have him with us once again. One of our favorite guests. He brings it every time he's with us. We appreciate his time. Uh, let's let's kind of try and spin some positives. Uh, you know, the the number eighty five in Cincinnati Bengals history is quite special. Uh, Isaac Curtis, yourself, you had Chad. You had Tyler Eifert, and now you got T. Higgins. And T. Higgins, kind of a little bit of a slow start of for the season, but really has ascended and be kind of become the number one receiver. AJ Green it doesn't look like the old AJ Green. And whoever's playing quarterback for this team has really started to look at T. Higgins quite a bit in the passing game. Your thoughts on him, especially since he's donning your old jersey number uh out there on the on the field for the Cincinnati Bengals. Well, let, let me say this before I get to praising T. Higgins. Uh, part of his success is the fact that A.J. Green's out there still taking the number one corner. So T. Higgins is getting at the third corner, and that's a mismatch, and that's, that's great for the Bengals. Don't get me wrong. I'm just strategically, A.J. still commands the number one guy. He had Xavier Howard on him in the Miami game. Uh, Tyler Boer is going to get the number two guy, and T. Higgins is a definitely mismatch for any third receiver, I mean, third uh, a cornerback from the opposing team. And with that being said, he has totally taken advantage of that. He is a special talent, and he will continue to get better and better and better. Uh, when you look at him, it makes you wonder, how in the world did that kid get drafted in the second round with that type of talent? I mean, he has it all. Yeah, he has the range. He has the ability. He's going across the middle, and that was the one thing I guess we all kind of questioned is how tough is he? And, you know, he's showing some toughness. And, and, and I think it's funny when you look at that, that number 85 jersey, and you look at Isaac, you know, it's funny because I get called, and, and it's a generational thing. I, I've been with Chad where someone didn't recognize me, and they'll go, the original 85 to Chad. And then they'll say to me when I'm by my, the original 85. And then I'm going to be with Isaac, the original 85. I'm like, well, yeah, I, know my <laughs> I don't know Tyler Eifert as well. But, you know, it, it, it kind of is. If you, if, if you do look at, if you're that big sports fan, and you look at you look at the game, and you're looking for something positive. And we got diehard, including myself, Bengal fans. That no matter when, lose or draw, we're still in there. Yeah, we've you know, as they say, we die hard, so we died a lot of times, but we always surge back up. Okay, but when you have a number with so much prestige behind it, and you are part of that, that feels good to me in a personal way because people continue to identify that number. And when I know, and, and this is real special, and I know sometimes we say things that are very cliche but when I know, and coming up, I used to watch Isaac Curtis play, mm. and that was a wow factor for me, you know, all crap aside. That was a true, never in my wildest imagination as a snotty-nosed kid in Cleveland, Ohio, would I ever think that somebody would ever even talk about me in the same sense. So, I could never think of it because it just wasn't a part of my mind. Then not only that, when I see that generation before me and then I become a part of a generation, it's kind of like the University of Tennessee with Willie Gaw and so on and so forth. Then I see Chad take over 
And you know, I see him doing interviews talking about myself and Isaac. You know, it just it makes you. It, I mean, it does. It gives you some self gratification. Then you see Tyler Eifert, and now you kind of feel bad for the guys because now they got, they got a lot of pressure on them. They got mass pressure to produce, and that to me that that is just. I mean, that's it's like I said, it's very gratifying, and at the same time, it's very um, uplifting, if you will. Just stick on and that. My dog, my, and my dog actually had a couple of comments too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, about, yeah, it was positive, <laughs> great positive feedback about his memories as well. But sticking he, on he, that, he, my, my dog was saying, "Where to go? Where to go? Eighty-five. Where to go? Eighty-five." <laughs> <laughs> but I guess sticking on that topic, though, because I think we can all kind of assume that AJ Green's time is probably done in Cincinnati, and then the next logical progression is for T. Higgins to kind of ascend into that role. What are you looking for him as he continues to develop? What can he do better? to make sure that he can tackle those number one corners on a week-to-week basis? Well, man, that's tough. Because the hardest part to deal with from a number three receiver going to number two, going to number one, is it's very easy when you're not game-planned. When the defensive coordinator on Tuesday is not saying, we got to stop that guy. That's the guy we must control, and you are going to cover that guy, whether it's all over the field, whatever it may be. So when you, when you have that, he's going to have to adjust. And you'll probably see a lull, you know, at the beginning of next year. You'll see a lull. He will maybe not be as successful as he is right now, but then he'll start learning ways to attack. And because at first time you're looking over, you're like, okay, this is really easy. Then, you you know, he gets out there and they go, well, wait a minute. I'm not getting the separation that I'm used to last year. But the quality of the cornerback is now has, you know, has risen. So he's going to have to learn how to adjust to someone. Right now, he is the superior talent. He's going to learn that sometimes he's going to line up and be the inferior talent. And he's going to have to learn mentally how to strategy, strat from a strategic standpoint, he's going to have to learn how to get open without physical skills. Physical skills is going to have to be a secondary uh, thing to get him open. Tim, before I, I get to my next question, we'll just take up a couple more minutes of your time, if you don't mind. Uh, we appreciate all, all the time that you've given to us. Just going to get to a couple of quick comments and questions in our live chats here. Mike Holbrook, I think you know Mike. Uh, tell yeah. Tim I said hi. Yeah, I wanted to share that one with you. Mike's a good, uh, mm-hmm. good friend of this show. Larry Wilson Jr., bang, uh, Tim McGee equals Bengal legend. Thought you'd like that one. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, just a real quick one. Do you, are you still in touch with Eddie Brown and Rodney Holman, two of your, Ab- your other absolutely. excellent teammates? Okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we talk. And then anytime, what we typically do as former players, if you don't live here in Cincinnati, when you go, like Eddie lives in uh, Miami, so when I'm in Miami, I see him all all the time. Tim, I I, uh, I guess I will end wrap things up a little bit here. Um, put yourself, if you will, in the in the Bengals GM chair. I know that doesn't really exist, uh, but uh, if you put yourself in the Bengals GM chair uh, for next year, in turn, with coaching staff aside. How do you approach the offseason? Um, you know, there's some, t- some there's some people in a camp of, hey, take those high picks once again and use them the way you did in, in 2020. Or because of the massive roster holes and impending free agents and all of that, maybe you move back a little bit this time, collect some more picks. 
round out the roster. Um, what, what are kind of some of the positions you would attack and your approach to the draft based on what we've seen this year and what's needed for next year? Listen, listen, do more listening. If someone wants to throw you a Herschel Walker deal, Herschel Walker deal, take it. Other than that, stay where you are with the plans of taking the big tackle out of Oregon or the tackle out of Alabama. Upgrade your right guard in the free agency. Um, solidify your the middle and Jonah Williams on the left side. You're, you're good there. So you've upgraded your talent level on the offensive line and commit to the run, understanding how to run the football, bring in a run specialist from a, um, a running back coach or a offensive line coach because they're going to have to do it. No question about it. Go to the defensive side of the ball, improve your, 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 your second and third level. Um, get, you're probably going to see Geno Atkins move on. So you're going to have a lot of cap room between Carlos Dunlap, who's gone, A.J. Green, 16 to 17 million, and um, 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 Geno's salary. So you're going to have some flexibility as far as dollars are, are concerned. So you just got to utilize those dollars and make a commitment to the staff on what you want to do. This staff can no longer on the offensive side of the ball, especially can no longer be a pass happy staff. Cause again, we are assuming Joe Burrow will come back, but here's the thing we don't know. We don't know when he's coming back, what week that will be. And we don't know what level he will play when he returns. So we have to take into account that and you have to protect him with one way and one way only run the football. You must run the football. I know Anthony didn't say anything about coaches, but do you consider bringing back Marvin Lewis in any capacity? He was in the news today. Well, I mean, he's not going to come back here. One thing about a head coach, he would never come back. I mean, that's something he wouldn't even consider coming back here as an understudy. That just wouldn't happen. Uh, so I don't think we'll see him back in this particular city. But I really do think it's going to be it's, – it's imperative they do it, but it's going to be hard to get a veteran coach to come in and help lead this young staff in the right direction. And they're, they're, in order to get some butts in the seats if the pandemic's over, they're going to need to make some changes on the coaching staff. The player side of it is not going to get butts in the seats. They're going to need to bring some names in here on the, maybe even as an offensive coordinator, but definitely as a defensive coordinator. Do you, do you think Marvin would fare better in a different organizational structure where there's not so much, um, I don't know what you would want to call it, maybe responsibility pressure that are that is put on Bengals coaches because of the smaller scouting staff, lack of a true GM, that sort of thing. Do you think Marvin would fare better, or is it going to be more of the same just if he, if he lands somewhere else? Hell yeah, he'll feel fare better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could this is why we ask these questions. <laughs> I, I absolutely love the Bengals management. I'm so loyal to them for obvious reasons, but come on now. I mean, there is not a there is not a head coaching job here that has much details, and you know you're wearing about 45 hats or in 24 hours a day. So, uh, you know, again, you know, coaches don't head coaches don't have to go evaluate talent and do all this and do all that. And you know, Marvin did bring them to the 21st century. Let's just be honest here. So, uh, yeah, but no, I, I'm pretty sure Marvin would want a, a position, a coach, head coaching job where. He can just coach and, you know, the GM and rely and have the confidence in the general manager to, to give him the right talent to fit his system so he can be successful. 
Tim McGee, former Bengals wide receiver, joined us. We asked for about 15 minutes. You gave us close to, to 30. Tim, I, I greatly appreciate it. You brought the fire tonight as expected. And, uh, man, we'd, we'd love to continue having you on this program. You, you, I, I'm not blowing smoke here. My co-host and I were on a collaborative podcast recently. We were asked who was some of our favorite guests. You were answer number one. So uh, you, you continue to bring it. I enjoyed watching you play when I was a little guy and am just thrilled that you've been been on this uh, program. So can't thank you enough. Where can our listeners uh, find you on pregame, postgame radio? And then I know you also have a Sprinter Sprinter van rental business as well in the Cincinnati area. Well, we have, Sprint, well, I have a couple of things, but the Sprinter um, is just SprinterRental.com. And um, you can get me on Facebook, obviously. And we're on WLW 700 iHeart. We're on Sunday, uh, typically 5.30 to 8.30, and, uh, you know, wish us well, pray for us, because um, <laughs> we, we hadn't had a lot positive to talk about. And by the way, since I'm your number one guy on your show, wait till you get my bill, man. Wait till I send that bill. Look at that, look at that face right there. Come on, Anthony. <laughs> He's the one brings in the money here. <laughs> Sounds like the Bengals management now. Come on, man. <laughs> No, I appreciate you guys having me on. I, pre I I greatly appreciate it. I hope we can have you on again real soon, Tim. Just just give me a call. I appreciate it, guys. All right. Take it easy, right. Tim. Thanks again. Okay. That was Tim McGee, one of the Bengals' top 50 players of all time, ranked on their uh, 50th anniversary of the franchise as of a couple of years ago. John, dude's just awesome. I mean, good God. That was – that was that might – that, that – was as good, if not maybe better, than the first time around. It, it makes a difference. Like sometimes, you know, even for even for me, like I get hesitant about asking certain questions. But when you know that you're going to just get the honest, candid, candid truth, you know, you can just you can throw those questions in there. You get you can get some gems. So you know, he said that he wasn't sure, or he would be astounded if him, the snotty nosed kid from Cleveland, would be mentioned with the same names as Isaac Curtis, the snotty nosed kid from Westchester, Ohio, and me, he's now interviewing Tim McGee. So, you know, life kind of comes full circle. Yeah, I, I vividly, I mean, some of my very first games watching as a, as a young guy, I'm dating myself here, but I, I remember him making some awesome plays in that Boomer Assize and Sam Weish offense. And uh, it's, it's just, it's really cool to have him on the program just because I loved him as a player. And then what he brings knowledge wise. And I, 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 I like what you said there, John, because, you know, he's a guy, he, he said it himself. He's loyal to the management, right? He left the team. And then when David Shula was still the coach, he came back um, after, uh, you know, for a year there, he, he loves the Bengals management. He loves the team, but he is not afraid to criticize where the team needs to be criticized. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of both barrels, that's what we wanted to ask him. We wanted to ask him about management style, maybe a little Marvin Lewis, and then it was both barrels on the coaching staff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's everything that we want to hear because you know we have thoughts on that, and to hear it from someone else with another perspective or maybe a more informative perspective with some actual anecdotal experience, it 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 helps, and it, I think it. I think our listeners appreciate it as well. Yeah, kind of validates a little bit of. <laughs> Of what we say here, uh, when a guy like Tim McGee kind of corroborates some of our opinions, so that was really enjoyable, really, really enjoyable. We apologize that we we had a little snafu last week in in getting him. We promoted that he was going to be with us, but getting him now this time uh, was was awesome. And we're going to try and get you a few more guests, special guests here on the podcast coming up before the new year, just to kind of round out the year 
We're going to try and get some more special guests, and we'll definitely keep you updated on that. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast, part of the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, which includes our show, Orange is the New Black, by Ace and Zim, as well as the Chalk Talk episodes from Matt Minnick. He also spearheads the Gansett, Narragansett Beer pregame show. So uh, we, we try and bring you stuff basically every day of the week if we can. A lot of different content and a lot of stuff on game day as well. John is part of that pregame show. They do a great job anchoring that thing, getting you set towards kickoff. And you can get all of our stuff on basically any audio platform that you that you have, as well as on our YouTube channel. If you go right under John's left shoulder, you got to get used to John's left shoulder there. That You can click that, subscribe to our YouTube channel, get no, uh notified when we go live etc so we're going to get to some more stuff here we've got a stat of the week that john's going to present to us in a second and then we're going to talk a little bit about the dallas cowboys game coming up here on sunday and then we will wrap up the show <laughs> so this is our stat of the week and it's usually you know i like to make it on on more of the on the advanced side um but you know this team is just at a point where it's like I'm, I'm not sure the effort's really worth it there. So I'm going to hat tip to, to Jay Morrison here, who covers the Bengals to the Athletic. Stat of the week is not really a stat. It's more just a number, and the number is five. And five players now have won player of the week in wow. the, the week of the game that they played the Bengals. Kyle Van Noy was the latest for the Miami Dolphins. He had three sacks against the Bengals offense line. The four other players were Patrick Queen, the Ravens in week five, Baker Mayfield week seven with the Browns, Ben Roethlisberger week 10, and Tress Way, the punter of the Washington football team week 11. So five, five players have been named player of the week in either offensive or defensive or special teams or whatever when they've played and also beaten the Bengals. That's where we're at. Does that, does that surprise you? I mean, that's got to no. be – is it a record? I mean, I, I, don't, <laughs> I saw that today and I was like, oh, my God, really? Like, I, it's not a stat, but it, I think it just needs it, – it needs to be shared. It, it's It's – it's it's incredible. It it truly is. It is. Uh, I if you don't mind me in encroaching on your stat of the week territory, John. Um, this has probably been shared quite a bit, but it is a next gen stat by Zebra Technologies. Uh, got this from NFL Communications on Tyler Boyd. I'll, I'll try and bring a little bit of positivity again to to the show here. Uh, Tyler Boyd gained 68 yards after the catch over expectations, otherwise known as Yak OE, Y-A-C-O-E, on his 72-yard reception. It was the most Y-A-C-O-E on a reception this season by any NFL wide receiver. So uh, at least the Bengals, as they maybe are setting a negative record <laughs> by allowing so many players get player of the week against them, uh, Tyler Boyd did have, at least for now, the top – Y-A-C-O-E, yards after catch over expectation. So um, I guess that's a good thing, right? Like I, I said it when it initially happened and upon further review 72 hours later, I think it's still unequivocally the best play of Drew Sample's career. Like the, he, he's the one who made that play possible. He blocked uh, the cornerback and allowed Boyd to get free. So I, I guess that's, that's what you draft in the second round. 67 yards after cat after catch over expectation. Yep. Nice play. Nice play by Boyd. And really, I guess we can talk a little bit before we move into the Dallas game. I guess we can talk a tiny bit about this game if we have to. Uh, pretty ugly one. We talked a little bit about it with, with Tim McGee just a, a few minutes ago. But, John, 
Um, you know, I, what, what I got out of this was it looked like a lot of frustration from losing frustration at the co- coaching staff, probably, and also poor coaching techniques in some instances that spilled over in this one. I mean, I think back to when AJ green in 2017 went ham on Jalen Ramsey in that game. And everyone was like, what, where did that come from? I felt that that was still a spillover from the the losing from that Steelers playoff loss. And now you've got guys like Sean Williams stomping on, on players on video. You've got Mike Thomas. One, one of the punt coverage things wasn't a big deal to me. I didn't think that was, you know, I thought it was pretty good, but the second one was, Oh boy. And then you've got guys throwing swings. I mean, it was just a mess. Um, so your your takeaways there based on what you saw this last Sunday. There's still a certain portion of this fan base that is infatuated with the idea of just becoming the Steelers, embodying what they think the Steeler way is, which is more or less just plain dirty. And that was that was what it was. That was the worst part of, of that desire on display. Um I mean, the Mike Thomas thing, it, it, I don't know if it was dirty, but the second time you can't go early again. Otherwise, that's that's the clear and rightful perception and narrative of the play. I know that Sean Williams got like backside blocked, but that I think happened after he clearly stepped on Solomon Kidney's calf, which is if, if it was if if the roles were flipped, if the jerseys were flipped, everybody would be up in arms about, about Sean Williams doing that. So and I know like the Brian Flores thing that obviously wasn't a good look for him. But at that point, like, like one team is losing, one team has been losing for the past five years, and when things get out of control like that, that's that's what the narrative that's what the narrative is, and that's you you live with that and you accept that, and you can either grow from that and improve, or you can continue being an irrelevant laughing stock, and that's exactly what they are. People were talking about, you know, is Zach Taylor going to get fired? If this game happens in week seventeen, and this is the lasting impression that the Brown family has with the offseason, I think it's entirely possible. Like they're lucky that this isn't the last game of the year because this is the type of games that have serious repercussions, not, not just losing and, and losing badly in terms of just on play for performance, but just how ugly it was. Like this is, this is everything that the, that I was told the nineties were because I didn't watch very much Bengals nineties football. I was just an infant, but I mean, that's yeah, it, it's, it, it's bad. It, it's, it's really bad. It really was uh, very, very similar to some of the 1990s, not the, the fun Jeff Blake 1990s or the the little flash in the pan boomer 1997 Bengals. We're talking, you know, Paul Justin. We're talking Achilles Smith. I mean, it's just the the at one point, John, in the second half, the Bengals had more players ejected than yards on offense. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. And you know, to your point, I thought you put out a good tweet too. I should have, I should have teed this up for people to to see it. But you put out, you know, it's one. Th- you kind of alluded to the fact of, you know, there's maybe some talk that if Taylor loses out, he still may be safe. But there is a way that you lose that can cost you your job. And mm-hmm. this is this that kind of stuff. And I didn't actually see the Sean Williams thing until the next day. I kind of, I, I the way I was watching the game and stuff, I didn't see it until the next day. And I was like, Oh my gosh, how did I miss that? Um, But those are the kinds of things that are on film that you go, that's inexcusable if you're a coaching staff. And I didn't, I didn't find the first hit to, to be in agreement with you. I didn't find the first hit by Mike Thomas to be any, I I thought it was an, uh, it was bang, bang play, but it was to me a pretty nice special teams play. The second one though, after you get penalized, the fact that you don't, have the wherewithal to pull back 
and then you make an even more egregious play the second time mm -hmm. shortly after, that's just a sign of a lack of discipline across the board and on the roster at this point. And that's unfortunately, you know, it's one thing if you're losing poorly because you don't have Joe Burrow, you got a bad offensive line, but it's another thing when you have these discipline issues on, on film. It, it's symbolic, you know, it's the second time that Turner and the staff have played his former employer in the Dolphins. And for, it's just like, like the narrative surrounding both teams entering this game, you know, how the directions of both teams have been, have gone so differently since both those coaches have been hired. And I, I guarantee you the Dolphins front office is thinking themselves like, like we employed these guys, like Taylor Turner, who started Michael yeah. Jordan inexplicably and had to bench him with ten snaps to go, like like that that's that's where we were. But this is where we are now, and we're we're eight and four, and and about to go to the playoffs, and they're they're an irrelevant laughing stock. I'll say it again. Yeah, and Kyle Van Noy beforehand, uh, you know, or the day after, he was on the Pat McAfee show, talked about how he he knew he was going to have a field day, which he did. I think he had three sacks on the day, hat trick. The team had six or seven on the day against the Cincinnati. I mean, you start to lose count after a half a dozen. It's just ridiculous. So, um, you know, those are the types of things where you just go, man, this is this is not the quote unquote culture that Zach Taylor is, is preaching about. You know, I see Jonathan, Jonathan, uh, not that one, Jonathan Thomas here. Why are people saying Taylor is safe? We're literally half a game better than last year. I, I, I understand Jonathan, and I think John understands as well that sentiment. But, I mean, you just heard Tim McGee. If you listen to him, you know that this is a very conservative ownership group, one that is very loyal and one that uh, is very, very hesitant to pull the plug. That's why Marvin Lewis got as much time as he did. So, I mean, I, mean, I think that's it's not necessarily a fan plea that he's safe. I think it's just the fact that we've seen a track record here with this with this ownership and management group. And uh, John, you know, here's my worry: is that the even if you get rid of Taylor, if you get rid of assistants or both, if you clean house, those are likely still a symptom of what's above them, and in, in terms of how they run how they run the team. And I think with Marvin Lewis garnering interest this this week and him kind of being back in the headlines and whatnot. That's why I asked him the question about how do you think he'd fare elsewhere? And he said he would, hell yeah, he would fare a lot better because of the responsibilities that are placed on coaches. When you have an inexperienced guy like Zach Taylor, this is this is the product when you take on too much as an inexperienced guy, I think. And it's a symptom of, of a problem above him. There's two, there's two ways to this because like the, the whole patience narrative, I saying that word a lot and i don't mean to i need to expand my vocabulary um i think i mean that's obviously skewed with marvin lewis because marvin lewis had you know great success in his first three years and that essentially earned him a lifetime contract when he won the division in 2005 and gave him all the time in the world probably too much time at the end of the day like in the 90s i mean like i'm um, dave shula lasted what three and a half years coslet lasted like three or something and dick lebeau lasted two and a half or two like and and those coaches he had more wins at this point than Zach Taylor does. So this might be new territory. It just might be going back to the pre Lewis era where it's just like, if you don't, if you don't show anything in your first few years, like even Marvin went, I think eight and eight in 2004 or somewhere around 500. So at least he showed promise and, and earned that, that, that loyalty that he eventually got from Mike Brown. I don't know if Taylor necessarily gets that, if he doesn't show anything in the near future, now, he might get, the 2020, the start of the 2021 season, regardless, 
because they want to try to give him one last shot. And if things don't turn out good in the start of next year, then I think it becomes a legitimate thing. But like, I don't know if, if he goes into 2021 with four and a half wins, like how much is that patience actually matter? How much have we seen in, in the history of, of Mike Brown owning this team? Like, does he really have that much patience for that little losing to start? Because he didn't really show it for Coslet and, and Shula like that. And even they had more success than Taylor did. Right. And now you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, a one in three record against the Cleveland Browns, which you know that doesn't sit well with Mike Brown and his family. You've got uh, no no division. Well, you got the one division win against the Browns, but you're one in whatever against the division. Zero road wins. I mean, the, the numbers just start stacking up. And you know, going back to what I was talking about, is as the coaching staff being a symptom of a of a greater problem. I mean, I think I know a lot of us, including myself, love the idea of another unproven, hungry, young, uh, offensive-minded head coach. But given what this team throws on the lap of a head coach in terms of overall responsibility, and they have to have their hands in everything, you almost wonder if an old-school, experienced coach, maybe maybe if it is a guy from way back in the way back machine, a Bill Cower, a, a Shanahan Sr., or whatever, that has Super Bowl pe- pedigrees, and they know – the NFL, they have a lot of experience. Maybe that's a better route just simply for the Cincinnati Bengals, even though it's not a sexy type of coaching hire. No, yeah, that's that's exactly what, what I meant to say following that, that previous point. Like, if, if Taylor does get fired, they're going to get somebody who's not only more experienced, but has better connections to hire better assistants, to bring in better assistants, because that's also been, if not equally, or if not more detrimental, equally detrimental to the to the failures that we've seen here like taylor's overall staff is just terrible and he just like it, it, it with, with sean McVay, like he at least had wade phillips as his defensive coordinator he at least had some type of experienced leadership to kind of lean on as he grows as a head coach taylor they knew he had to grow they knew he had to go through some some growing pains to begin they didn't think it was gonna be this bad but they you know trusted him to find guys to lean on and you know, while he's still learning on the job and guys like Anna Rumo and, and Turner, while they've been loyal servants to him, they have not helped the case and have not made the team better in any way, shape or form. So if they do go out and get a new coach, I agree with you. It's going to be somebody who is more experienced, who's more experienced as a play caller and just has better connections and better relationships with other systems that he can bring in. If they keep Taylor and they go the route of trying to rebuild the staff under him, they have to at least sell the the notion that, this guy Taylor is not going to get fired in the middle of the season because who the hell would want to coordinate the defense? Who, 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 which qualified candidate would want to coordinate this defense if he has any inkling that Taylor is going to get fired midway through the season? Because that he, he's not going to create career suicide like that, like that and look for a new job in the, in the beginning of 2022. Like that's that's a tough thing to sell, but that's exactly what these guys around the league who are vying for some of these positions are thinking about. If they believe that Taylor's seat is boiling hot to start 2021 it's going to be hard to attract some of those guys yeah that's a great point um look i mean uh, john and i sometimes get accused of being you know too negative or too hard on these coaching coaches or what have you uh look i mean i think we echo tim mcgee's sentiments in that we think zach uh, from what we know of him john you spoke to him in an interview and we, we have it on the, on the podcast, I think from last year uh, you met with him and he spoke hell of a nice guy, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. want him to do well. We want him to do well, but 
the numbers are starting to speak for themselves. And the, the ex, you know, the guys that have left or have forced their way out or whatever, there's, there's some fire with that smoke. And, um, you know, we, we got to call it like we see it. Exactly. And I think it, it, I don't want to say it's not fair to Taylor because he did take on the responsibility and he's a grown man and he, he do the risks of this and it, it, whether he was unqualified or not, like this is, this is his job and he has to do it to the best of his ability. And if the best of his ability is this, then he's just not qualified. And regardless of what I think about him personally, and like I, I spoke with him, I think he's a, a nice dude and everything that we've heard about him. He's just a, a, a nice guy. Like we can question some of his relationships with his, with his associates and colleagues, but just from my personal experience, he was fair to us, like me, Jake Lisko, and Nick Manchester for Cincy Jungle. He was fair with us and, and gave us honest answers and gave us time. And I think that's all you could really ask for someone in my situation. But, you know, and, and I think he handles, you know, facing the music pretty well, too. There's like it, it's not it's not an arrogance, but it is sort of like a like a like a, a, a suave, like coolness, I guess, to Yeah. It yeah, he, does, he doesn't really get rattled when, obviously, you know, there's warranted criticism coming his way. I, I, he con- continuously says the right things. He just doesn't really apply it, maybe because he just doesn't know how to, and he doesn't have those qualified ex- experience assistants to really help him out with this. So he was dealt a a tough hand more than most rookie head coaches, but like this is the reality, and the, and the Browns have to make the best decision. Yeah, this was interesting here. Kip Hudson, the numbers are, are not speaking for them for themselves. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, anyway, let's let's transition, John, into the, the next game on the schedule here. This would have been a, another one that would have been really interesting had Joe Burrow remained healthy. But uh, nevertheless, there's still some very interesting storylines here because Andy Dalton makes his return to Cincinnati. The Dallas Cowboys are in a rough spot, and it's not just because of the up-and-down play of Dalton, who has come in for Dak Prescott. It is because their offensive line is a mess. Their defense is a shambles. They can't if <laughs> ever want to get the run game going. This is the week to potentially do it because the Cowboys are like dead last in a lot of different running game categories. Um, your uh, your first impressions of this game as Andy Dalton makes his return to Cincinnati. Not only the running game, but the pass rush, like their tackles. I think what what I don't even know. Like Brandon Knight was a basketball player the last time I checked. He's at left tackle. Terrence Steele, who was terrible at the Senior Bowl, he was terrible at Texas Tech. He's been starting at right tackle. He's PFF's second to last graded right tackle. Like, if there's any time for Carl Lawson and Sam Hubbard to pop off, this would be the game to do it. And who uh, who else but the quarterback in Andy Dalton that can't handle pressure to save his life? You know, Cooper, Gallup, C.D. Lamb, those guys are all great, and I think they can have some success against the Bengals cornerback. They have Darius Phillips coming back. For the first time, he may be a little bit rusty. William Jackson's going to have his hands full with Amari Cooper. And I, w- I was told that Zeke Elliott played pretty well against the Ravens. I didn't watch that game at all, but I was told that he looked like his former um, productive self. So there's there's an opportunity for a, a breakout game for Zeke there. I remember the last time that they played, Zeke had like 140 yards and like a 60-yard yeah. touchdown back in 2016. So I'm sure he remembers that. But yeah, it's it kind of seems like a completely movable force versus a completely stoppable object. When you talk about really both units of both teams, like the Bengals offense can't help themselves to save their lives, but the Cowboys defense can't stop anything to save their lives. And it's just like, which of these inept units is going to be forced to win this game, you know? 
And I think this is the last winnable game on the Bengals schedule. But even still, like if Zeke and Pollard can just get something going against this defense, I don't know if Brandon Allen has the firepower to kind of match it. Yeah, this is either going to be a really sloppy, ugly, terrible game to watch, or this is going to be a high-scoring, fun game to watch with a lot of team, teams just kind of creating big plays, even with a Brandon Allen under center for the Bengals. I mean, these defense, these defenses are struggling. There, there's attrition all over these rosters in terms of injuries and COVID and all kinds of stuff. So there, there's, there's a lot of opportunities for big plays. It's just a matter of <laughs> if those teams will – We'll take advantage of that. Uh, the Andy Dalton thing. Do you do you expect him to just have this outstanding showing just because you know he's going to have a little extra fire? And do you? I mean, aside from better draft positioning for the Bengals, do you want him to come in here and light it up? Whether it's maybe to send a message to Bengals management about Zach Taylor or or his own abilities. Um, I don't know. How, how are, are you hoping? for an Andy Dal- Dalton big game, or are you just indifferent about it? I mean, at this point, in, in terms of predicting what the Bengals would do, I just assume the worst. So I, I, I would imagine he's going to – I think he's played pretty decently in recent weeks. I know he played well against the Vikings a couple weeks ago, and but for all intents and purposes, he had some good moments against the Ravens, even though he had some classic um, – Yep. fail in the face of pressure moments. But I mean, it's, it's the Ravens in primetime. People should have expected that anyways. But yeah, I think the, the fact that he's still got good receivers and he's going up against a defensive line that can't rush the passer for, for Jack, like that's a definite opportunity for him to just kind of stick it to the Browns or, or whatever, whatever motivation he has. I think he understood why they had to move on from him, but I think he's still a little bitter about him getting benched in the middle of the season and then right before the trade deadline. So he couldn't get out of there when he, when he wanted to, I think, you know, he, he ended up in a, in a decent situation to kind of, to kind of build up some momentum going into next free agency to maybe get a bigger deal. But I don't think he expected the entire Cowboys offensive line to also crumble before him, but this is a chance for him to really make a statement because he has an opportunity against the defense that definitely struggles to rush the passer. So he has a definite chance and, if he does well, he does well, and just it just is what it is. I want him to do well. I want him to do well. I would like to. I've I've I got a saw a little bit of a soft spot for Andy. He's, you know, I, I feel like he overachieved with the Bengals in a lot of different years, and heck of a nice guy. And you just you know, yeah, you know, I kind of want to see him do well. And uh, if that ends up being some sort of, I don't know death knell for this coaching staff or something, I don't know. But uh, you know, I I. I I'd like to see him do well. I don't, you know, I I, I don't really have a reason not to. Uh, the this this one's going to be very hard to very hard to tell in terms of what direction uh, this is this is going to go in, John. Um, do you do you have a a major key to the game, or do you have a uh, I don't know, uh, like a, a thing that the Bengals need to do. Last week against Miami, I said, you know, they kind of need to have one of those big turnovers for touchdowns or something like that. They almost had one, but it was called back. Um, do you do you see something similar in order for them to get that unlikely win, or how do you how do you see this playing out? I think they just got to pressure Dalton. Like they, of all teams that know how to make Andy Dalton struggle, it's, it's the Bengals. Um, I think there's going to be veterans on the, on their defense that are going to want to take those shots at them just for old time's sake, but also to 
trying to make a statement. Um, this is going to be interesting to see how much fight is actually left with this team going up against the, f- the former franchise quarterback. You know, it, it would be a statement for him, Dalton, to get this win on the road and keep the Cowboys, I guess, somewhat still alive in that terrible NFC East yeah. race, which is actually kind of picking up now between Washington and New York, but I digress. Um, yeah, I, I think d- definitely making Andy Dalton the, the lesser quarterback out of these two backup quarterbacks is is the main key. You know, um, I, I don't know what to expect from Zeke at this point. Every time I watch him play, he fumbles or he just doesn't look like yeah. how he used to back at Ohio State. But, I mean, I know, to- I know Tony Pollard is – capable of kind of going ham against this defense anyway. So, you know, it, it, I think it comes down to the defensive line again. Just they have an opportunity to, to pressure Dalton and to make him force him to make some bad decisions. And that could keep him in this game. And maybe Brandon Allen gets lucky and, and they get some more than just one decent drive on offense. Well, let's uh, call our shot. Then we'll drop the mic and get out of here uh, talking about the Cowboys coming to Cincinnati, Andy Dalton returning to the Bengals. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, like I said, the Bengals getting a running game going, just even without Joe Mixon, getting a running game going against the porous Dallas Cowboys defense has to be a key for them to get a win or have a chance to win this game. Let's uh, you got a you got a prediction, uh, a, a funky thing that you want to predict happening. Uh, what do you what do you got for us? It, it, I don't know, man. Like, I, I just have just negative interest in this game. It's weird because like I remember when Carson came back and when he was with the Raiders and there was so much hype around that game and Gina sacked him sometime in there and they won easily. I was in the end zone with my dad and we were sitting behind some obnoxious fans. Like the, 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 like the fanfare in this game is obviously down because there won't be any, or there will be minimal fans in the stands and both teams stink. And I mean, Dalton wasn't supposed to play in this game. Joe Burrow was supposed to play in this game against Dak Prescott. It's like, I don't know. I, I my creativity in terms of predictions is is all the way down with this. Um, I just I, I don't know how they come back from that showing in Miami. Maybe something happens on the first drive where they make a statement because this. I mean, this Cowboys team is not impressive in the slightest. So uh, I defer to you because I I have nothing and I I'm not ashamed to admit it. The. I'm going to set the bar at two, over or under two, quote-unquote, Andy Dalton moments in this game. What, would you take the over or would you take the under? What I mean is a throw out of bounds on fourth down, a pick six, a an accidental fumble. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I love the guy. I said that. But, you know, there's we can all admit there's been Andy, quote-unquote, Andy moments. So There's going to be multiple of both. I, I think I think you're going to see some erratic, crazy scrambles out of clean pockets. You're going to see some ter- You're going to see at least one bad throwaway, but you're also going to see just a random out of nowhere clutch moment that he w- that he sometimes had. I think they're going to give him an opportunity to do that. I, I could so easily see him like having a game winning drive in in this game, but I don't think it's going to be that interesting for that to happen. So we'll see. Yeah, I. I- I guess I would, that's a good point to say, you know, I I think that pendulum would go both ways. Uh, I I will say, man, I I set the line at two and I'm like, that's what it's going to be. But I guess, I guess I will say under, I will say we'll only have one quote unquote Andy moment. I will will say that. Let's drop the mic and get on out of here, John. You got any final thoughts for us before we pop on out? Yeah. On a 
more positive note, I appreciate what the Bengals, uh, not the the football side of things, but the management side of things, I appreciate what they did early in this week. They partnered up with Black Owned Outerwear, which is a local outerwear clothing brand run by Means Cameron. Um, he's a local entrepreneur. Um, I think his store is on Elm Street, but they w- launched a clothing uh, line called Stripes Don't Come Easy. Its whole purpose is to raise awareness for um, um, you know, racial inequalities and stuff like that. Um, and also a portion of the proceeds go to Order, which is a non-profit organization also based in Cincinnati with a mission to you know elevate these uh, historically marginalized entrepreneurs and help grow their businesses. So appreciate to what Elizabeth Blackburn, who is the director of community outreach essentially for the Bengals, appreciate what she has done this season. And we don't really often give these types of endeavors uh, the spotlight that they deserve, but I feel like th- this needed a spotlight uh, this week. Yeah, I like the the one that Sam Hubbard was wearing in one of the pictures, that kind of beigey, orangey one with the stripes on the shoulders. I mm-hmm. thought that was kind of a cool hoodie. And uh, the I, I think Gio was wearing it too in another picture. Yeah, good stuff. I know you put an article up on Cincy Jungle on that. So if you're wondering kind of what some of that stuff looks like, go check out cincyjungle.com. Uh, John put up an article kind of talking about the background on that. Good stuff, John. I want to just kind of, I don't normally do this, do kind of the shout out thing to listeners and stuff, but we've got, you know, I I see, I see one here. uh, Some guy, I love you, Anthony. Thanks for being such a loyal Bengals fan, keeping it strong for us. I appreciate that. Some guy got a couple of also some messages just out of the blue recently. Uh, Matthew, Matthew S. I, I share this with the other podcasters on our channel, but uh, said I wanted to stop by and say I love Cincy Jungle and Ace and Zim and all of you guys. I listen to your podcast every day on Pandora. I'm an armored truck driver here in Cincinnati, and your guys' podcasts make the day fly by. I'm a diehard Bengals fan and have been my whole life. A lot of times, uh, a lot of the times towards the end of the week, I re-listen to your guys' stuff because it's so good. Day. So like that, there's also one we got from Spencer Myers saying, I don't know how you power through the podcast and updates. This season is arguably worse than the last, but just know that I look forward to you and John talking about the week before and ahead. Appreciate what you do. So thank you, Spencer. There's a bunch of other people too that uh, have been sending some kind notes and I know it's easy for Bengals fans to lash out at uh, anybody that is talking about the team, uh, whether, you know, if you don't agree with their opinion or what have you. Um, I, I just, you know, the, the comment, John, to me that Spencer, uh, said to us, I don't know how you guys do it week in, week out when the team isn't good. Well, it's the fact that listeners like that. And I, you know, I see another one in here, Jason Von Stein, who's been great to us and and many, many others. Um, you know, it, Mike Holbrook's in there. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what keeps us going. The listeners, you guys drive the train here. Spencer for keeping it a buck. I don't know what I'm going to do when and if the Bengals are ever good again. I've never covered them when they are good. This is kind of all I know personally. Like I was a fan of the team when they were good. And ever since I started you know, covering them on a more professional basis, they've been one of the worst teams in the NFL. So this is this is pretty um, familiar territory for me. So, But I appreciate the shout out. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great, great group of things, a great group of people. And sometimes I, I say this on the postgame show, it's like, it's virtually group hug. It's kind of a nice therapy session a lot of times when this team isn't good. But thanks for all of you, the kind words there. Our thanks to Tim McGee for joining us. Gave us like 30 minutes. That was freaking awesome. Uh, guy, is, guy is great. We'll have to have him back again very, very soon. We, we took too long between the last two times we had him on. But hope you enjoyed that. And our thanks to Mr. McGee. For John Sheeran, I'm Anthony Cazenza. We'll see you next time. Have a good week.